This evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is really part two of this morning, but it also fits in with our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith as we arrive at that point of uh, dealing, as it does in uh, chapter 11, with the subject of justification. So we could ask it this way. So why is the cross so important? We saw the centrality of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, and indeed I think you would attest to the fact we we could have turned to numerous passages this morning uh, to, to point that out. So we deal with the centrality of the mission and, and of the message of the church. Christ crucified. As Paul states, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So why is that so important? Why does that become so crucial? Because of justification. It is what the cross accomplishes. It is because the cross accomplishes our justification that it becomes so important that the church does not lose that main emphasis. It's not that the other things we mentioned are not important, and it's not even that some of those don't dovetail in to the message of the gospel. But to elevate them above the cross so that we would, we, we would think of, well, the most important thing about our church is this ministry or that ministry or this or that. And we think not of the cross would indeed be a tragedy. So let's hear how Paul explains it to the same group of believers, the church at Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we begin with wonderful words of assurance, and we'll come back to that at the end. But Paul's means in the chapter is to first of all tell them what they have coming and why they have it coming to them. We're going to go the other way. Why do you have it? coming, what's it based on, and then what's coming. 2 Corinthians 5, for we know, notice that, for we know, not we guess, not we hope, not we think, not we pray, we know. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For for while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
For whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do indeed groan as we wander this earth in our humanly bodies. We look at the world and we just cannot believe what we see, the evil that exists. But yet, Lord, we have one thing that many, many people do not have, and that is hope. When you died on that cross, when you said it is finished, it wasn't really the end, but it was the beginning for us because now we have the hope of spending the rest of eternity with you. And we thank you for that. Pray that you will give Pastor Bob the, the wisdom that he needs to be able to convey the words to us. And we pray that you will prepare our hearts so that they will readily and willingly and easily accept those words. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. So when the confession follows up effectual calling with justification, it does so because it's following the pattern that we find in Romans 8.28. Those who are called, he also justifies. So those he calls effectually, those who, who God brings about the great conversion, brings about the fact that they are born again, those that he calls effectually, those he also justifies. 
And that's why justification, at least in the confession, follows that of calling. And we'll come back because we need to fill in the gap there later on. And the confession will do that, but in due time. But it wants us to see, as it were, the whole once again. So we are effectually called and then we are justified. Martin Luther referred to justification as the great exchange. And we could well pen in the words of the hymn that we have just said. His robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. Because that's what Luther was thinking about. And in particular, it's when we come to the 21st verse. So that's what we want to center our thoughts on tonight. That verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to look at three things. First of all, the purpose of justification. Secondly, the means of justification. Thirdly, the result of justification. What's the purpose? Why, why does, does there need to follow from those that God effectually calls, why does it need to follow that they are then justified? What's the purpose of this justification? Well, Paul has hinted at it through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's the word that kind of comes back over and over and over again. It's that idea to reconcile. The purpose of justification is to reconcile us with God. To reconcile us as sinners, totally depraved, with a holy God. How, how is this relationship in which depraved sinners who are under the wrath of God, who are under the judgment of God, who are under the condemnation of God, who the Bible refers to as the enemies of God, how, how is it going to come about that there are those who are going to be saved and spared from judgment, spared from condemnation? In fact, they're going to be glorified. In fact, they're going to be given a heavenly home. How can God do that to totally depraved sinners and remain just and remain holy. He does it by reconciling us. That's the purpose of God's declaration of justification. To be declared righteous. To be declared without sin. How does God do that? Why does God do that? Because he wants to reconcile us. He wants to draw us back. As his people. He wants to reestablish that relationship. We see that picture in a glimpse. Do we not? Even in the garden. That we have a, a hiding. Cowering. Adam. And it's God who comes. Adam. Where are you? The desire of the heart of God. Is to reestablish the relationship of friendship, of peace, of wholeness, of shalom with his children. But in order to do so, 
We have to take these, these depraved enemies of God, you and I, we not only have to call them out of darkness into his light, but, but there's some sort of an exchange that needs to take place. Something needs to happen. Because that which is impure, as we read in Scripture, can never be in the presence of God. The purpose of justification is to reconcile. Or, to phrase it in the other side of it, which Paul does here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well, is not to condemn. God desires not to condemn those who are his. Those who are his sheep. Those who are the sheep of his pasture. Those who are part of his flock. Or we might say those who God has called. Those who God has elected. God's desire is he doesn't want to condemn us. He takes no joy in condemning us. Or I should say, he would take no joy in condemning us. His, he, he, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to have our sins piled up. When, when we appear before that judgment seat of Christ, as Paul indicated here in this passage, he, he doesn't want for us as his people to stand there and to approach that day in some utter fear. As if we, like Adam, stand naked before Almighty God with all of our sin. He doesn't want to condemn. That's why there's, there's justification. The purpose of justification is not only to reconcile us to God, but also so that He doesn't have to condemn us for our sins. I want you to note verse 21. It's an interesting phrase. It, in the ESV, it starts at the beginning of the sentence. If you have other versions, you'll find it embedded in the statement. But in the ESV, it comes at the beginning. For our sake. Why is, what is the purpose of justification? It's for our sake. It's for our sake. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. It's for us. This beautiful, treasured doctrine embedded throughout the word of God is there. For our sake. It is for our benefit. It's for our sake. That God does this. I've said it before. And I'll bear it here as well. God. Already. Has all the glory. And all the honor. And all the praise. His conversion of me does not add to that. Do you understand that? that? That God taking me as a sinner, transforming me, doesn't add to the glory of God. God says, wow, now I got a little bit more glory because of what I did for Bob. 
See, you can't diminish the glory of God. You can't lessen the glory of God. Nor can I add to the glory of God. Justification isn't for him. It's for our sake. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why? What is the purpose of justification? It is to fulfill the love of God for us as his people. Now does that bring glory to God? Of course it does. But I'm not adding to his glory. It's not like God's going, phew, I was, I was feeling really down until I saved Bob. And now that I saved Bob, wow, I feel a whole lot better about myself as God. That's not what's happening, folks. But you see, each one of us as a transformed life, as a new creature in Christ, brings glory to God. But he does it for our sake. Secondly, what is the means of justification? How does God go about reconciling us? And here's where we focus in again upon the cross. Paul explains it this way. For our sake, the purpose of justification... The means he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's what's happening on the cross. That's why the cross takes over the central place it does in the message of the church. What's happening on the cross? What's taking place there? Jesus is dying. Yes. What's the importance of that? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now let's take those two parts. Okay? He made him to be sin. At no point, at no juncture, is Jesus a sinner? We need to make that important distinction. Jesus is not a sinner dying on the cross for sinners. God lays upon him the iniquity of us all. God places upon him our iniquity. That's the way Isaiah put it this morning in Isaiah chapter 53, did he not? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God doesn't fill Jesus Christ with sin. It's not that all of a sudden Jesus is on the cross and he starts having thoughts of lust. He's not on the cross suddenly there thinking of, oh, I'd really like to kill those Pharisees now. It's not all of a sudden Jesus is on the cross and he's filled with rage at his disciples who don't even show up at the cross. It's not that suddenly Jesus is filled with anger at the Father 
for putting him through this, this horrific thing. It's not suddenly that Jesus is filled with the desire for the revenge to get back at every Roman soldier. See, if Jesus was filled with sin, that's what would be happening. But you see, Jesus isn't filled with sin. God places upon him all the sinful acts of you and I. Turn with me, keep your finger here, 2 Corinthians 5. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're at the cross. Find verse 45. Now from about the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some... Of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. At once they ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait and see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Why have you forsaken me? Because the Father has laid upon him my sin. The Father has laid upon him your sin. Has placed it upon his shoulders. Didn't fill him with sin. Didn't become sin in the sense of being a sinner. What is happening on the cross is Jesus is substituting himself and paying the price that my sin deserved. See, as I stand before the courtroom of God, as I stand before his holy presence, there is but one word to utter. Condemned. Condemned. There is but one word to utter for you. Condemned. As we stand in the presence of the righteous judge. Condemned. Sentence to everlasting damnation. He, at the cross, steps forward and says to the Father, No, don't punish them, Father. Punish me. And so the Father isn't looking at the cross going, 
wow, this was, this was just a wonderful, loving thing for this man to do, to step up there. The Father is looking at all my sin, all your sin, that which should condemn us to an everlasting The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See, that's what's going on there at the cross. That's why we we are called to preach the cross. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He is the perfect, sinless son of God. Oh, he is aware of what sin is. That's not the, the when, it, when it says he knew no sin, it doesn't mean he isn't aware of what sin is. Of course, Jesus knows what sin is. He is offended by sin. He understands what sin is. He deals with the effects of sin. He is confronted by sin. He knew no sin. Here's that rich, rich Bible word, right? He knew. And Abraham knew his wife. And Isaac knew his wife. And Jacob knew his wife. What does it mean? It means to be intimate with. To be one with. He knew no sin. That's why I can tell you most assuredly that hanging on that cross is not a sinner. It is the sinless Son of God who knew no sin. He was not intimate with it. He was not part of it. He did not participate in it. He did not give in to it. He was free from all sin. This is the glory of the cross. That the sinless one bore my sin. If sin is in him, if he has become a sinner, then he's just being condemned for his sin that is now in him. But the sin isn't in him. God takes your and my sin. Those of us who are effectually called. He takes our sin. And he places it upon Christ. And Christ willingly bears that sin. And he goes to the cross. And there on that cross he bears all The condemnation that my sin and your sin deserves. That eternity of hell. In those moments of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that hellish eternity of those moments. Christ. Performs that wonderful. Great exchange. My sin is taking upon him. He who knows no sin. 
Why? For our sake. The only possible means of our justification is verse 21. There's no other way this can happen. There's no other means by which justification can be reached. Only for the sinless Lamb of God to bear my guilt, my condemnation, my sin. cross is what Paul said needed to be preached. I'm sure there's other means and other words that can draw men to the Father. But nothing more powerful than the message of the cross. Christ died for sinners so that we might be righteous. Look at verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that, here is the result, here is the result of justification, so that in him, And only in Him. It's interesting how so often, okay, the, without really prepping it, songs of our, of our uh, song service fit in, right? In Christ alone, my hope is found. You, know, you read through the lyrics of that song and, and what you have is in song an expression of this glorious truth. What do we have in his robes for mine? An expression of, in song of this glorious truth. So that in him and solely in him there is no other name given amongst men by which we can be saved. I.e. justified. You're not going to argue with God your way into heaven at the great judgment. There's no but ands that God the judge is going to listen to. There are no other pleas that can be offered. It is Christ and Christ alone. So that in Him, what? We might become. That word become there means to be changed in terms of the relationship. That we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That we might become what? We know what we were. We know we are sinners under the judgment and condemnation of God and under the wrath of God. What, what happens as a result for our sake he became sin who knew no sin. What, what happened at that cross? So that in him we might become, we might be changed. 
We are, as Paul wrote in chapter 5 earlier, new creatures in Christ. That we might become, listen, the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That we might become the righteousness of God. Declared innocent of all sin? Yes. All charges against us dropped? Yes. But you see, it's the righteousness of God. It's not my righteousness. It's not that God takes righteousness and as it were, you know when you go to the, sometimes when you go to the, the hospital, if, if, you, if you've, uh, um, are in for a surgery or something and, and, you know, you're dealing with a lot of pain, they hang that little bag up there and then there's this line that goes into the back of your hand and they, they put that thing and they put that little drip on and those drips start going in and so on, and pretty soon that, that little drip, it, it doesn't just deal with this part of your hand, it, it goes through your entire body. That, that's, you're being infused. We're not infused with righteousness. It's not that God fills us with righteousness. It's that God brings us into his righteousness. That's why it's his robes for mine. We are now covered and under the cover and under the refuge of God's righteousness so that we might become what? In and safe and secure in the righteousness of God. And if I'm in the righteousness of God, do I have anything to fear? Do I have anything of which to be afraid? I'm in the righteousness of God. Do you think God, who, who, who has placed me in His righteousness, in His holiness, in His purity now, is going to on the last day say, oh, by the way, Bob, let me take you out of my righteousness for a moment and expose to the world all of your sin. God won't do that. Why? Because I'm in his righteousness. I can't move out of it. God has so completely covered me with his righteousness, with his glorious robes of righteousness, that never again, in the mind, in the thought, in the expression of God, do my sins come back. Blessed is the man whose sin is wholly covered in the sight of heaven. wonderful exchange 
my horrific, sin-filled, sin-stained life is exchanged. Christ takes it on. Christ wears my guilt. And I receive from Christ the righteousness of God to cover me, to guard me, to protect me, to keep me. That's why Paul at the beginning of this chapter can say, and we know. How do I know that when I die, I will be with the Lord? How do I know that? What if I haven't done enough? What if I haven't preached fervently enough? What if I haven't been faithful enough? What if I haven't been a good enough husband? What if I haven't been a good enough father? What if, what if I haven't been a good enough person? Isn't it possible it might all blow up in my face? And Paul says, no! Because we are justified. Not by us. Not by what we do. But we're justified by God who declares us because of the cross to be in His righteousness. And because I'm in His righteousness, because I'm in the covered of His tent, because my life is hid in Christ, as Paul will say, we know, we know we shall be with him in glory. That's not pride, my friends. That's not arrogance. That's submitting to the wonderful word of grace. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God's people say, Amen.